Open your copy of God's infallible life-giving word and turn to Psalm 16, if you haven't done that already. Pastor Eric asked me to fill in for him while he's away this weekend, enjoying some time with extended family, and we should be very thankful that he's able to do that. It's so important to have that time away with loved ones so that he can be refreshed. It's good for him. It's good for us as well as he comes back with his batteries charged to exhort us in the Lord and to equip us for gospel ministry and Christ's kingdom work. Shepherding a church is definitely hard work. Sheep can be very challenging to care for. They can bite you. They can wander off. Sometimes they don't listen very well. They don't want to go in the direction that you want them to go. You guys know I'm talking about you and not me, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Anyhow, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our summer series in the Psalms. And I really can't think of a better place for us to land in the Psalms than Psalm 16. This is a a wonderful psalm. It truly is. It's a psalm about the goodness of God and the grace of God and how true and everlasting satisfaction can only be found in knowing him. And then like all the psalms, it points us to our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our sermon title for this morning is Fullness of Joy. And I'm going to ask you to stand again with me as we honor the Lord with the reading of his word. Let's stand together. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God be praised by the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together now. Let's bow our heads and ask him to bless our study of Psalm 16. Our glorious Father in heaven, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we ask that you would open our eyes this morning, that we may see the wonders of your word. And Lord, please give us grace that we may clearly understand and choose the way of your wisdom. We ask that you'd open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and as your words proclaimed, we'd hear with much joy what you say to us today. Help us to so hear your holy word that we may truly understand, and that understanding we may believe. And Lord, that believing we would follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple weeks back, uh, Brother Michael shared with us from Psalm 15, and, and I think he did a great job, by the way. I want to compliment you on that, Michael. We appreciate that sermon. And in his introduction, he quoted the first question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm, 
I'm really thankful that he did that. I'm a huge fan of the solid catechisms because they help us learn and memorize Bible doctrine and ultimately they help us to know our God. And the question that Michael posed and answered that, that he shared was this, and I know most of you are familiar with this. What is the chief end of man? And you can answer with me. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And really, essentially, that's what Psalm 16, our psalm for this morning, is all about. It's about enjoying God forever. John Piper actually tweaked the answer to this catechism question a little after he had read some works of one of his favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards. Piper put it this way, The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. That by enjoying God, you actually glorify him. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said that really impacted Piper so much. He said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. And Piper was was radically impacted by this statement of Edwards. And he, he went on to sum it up this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let me repeat that for a minute. Let that sink in. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. These words essentially capture the heart of King David in Psalm 16. It's a a psalm of confidence. David focuses on all the blessings and benefits he has from God. And he says, I am completely satisfied in the Lord. I I just love this psalm. Now, there are several different ways this text can be outlined, but I broke it down into three headers with some subpoints. I'm hopeful that it will help uh, note-taking be easier for us and, and help you track along with David as he expresses what's in his heart. And as I say that, I'm trusting the Lord will work in your own hearts in a very powerful way this morning for his glory and for your own good. So, it says first of all in the psalm that this is a a mitcam. What in the world is that, you might be thinking? That's a, a really good question. And we're really not sure exactly what a mitcam is. There's some rabbinical sources that guess it to mean a golden poem or a mystery poem. And I think both those terms accurately describe the psalm. This psalm is certainly filled with spiritual riches. There's a, a wealth of spiritual gold and beauty that we have in this psalm. Yet it's also filled with a lot of mystery. It's a, a simple psalm to understand, yet at the same time, it's extremely profound. It's very theologically deep. It's a, a lot like the Gospel of John. It's, it's simple enough for a child to understand the main theme, yet so profound, we can never really plumb the depths of what we have here in this psalm. So, we're definitely not going to be able to give this psalm the attention it deserves with one sermon, but we will at least note the key truths and the main idea. My prayer has been that you'll be encouraged to dig deeper and really mine the riches of this incredible psalm. I'm hopeful that you'll be drawn ever closer to our great God of whom it speaks. And hopefully this just whets your appetite to dig in and study more. All right, so beginning in verse 1, we see the Lord's protection. That's your first outline header. The Lord's protection. This is in verses 1 and 2. David starts off here in verse 1 with a prayer. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, it could be that David's praying this at a time when his life was in imminent danger. Imminent danger. That's that's a possibility. 
Or it could be that he's just reflecting on the, the whole course of his life and the various times throughout his life when he had been in some danger. And there's some differences of opinion on this, and we're not exactly sure of the circumstances, but whatever the case is, David's praying to God, and he's asking God to be his protector in the dangers of life. All right, now, think for a minute about who's praying this. Who's praying for protection? This is David, right? I mean, this is a warrior. This is the same David who slayed the Philistine Goliath that no one else would even dare to fight. This is a a giant killer that's praying this prayer. So, So why is it that he's asking for protection? Well, Basically, because ultimately he knows he cannot protect himself. He knows he needs a a place of refuge in the times of danger. And the Hebrew verb here in the verse for refuge is actually used in a couple of other places in the Old Testament. It refers to a a cave as a place of shelter. It could also be referred to as a, a large shield that you're protected by when you're in battle. And so where exactly is this shelter? Where is this refuge? Notice again what David says. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You're my shelter, God. Really, this is a confident declaration from the heart of David. He's declaring what God is for him. He's a refuge as a way of strengthening his own hope. And that because of this, God will in fact preserve him. He actually uses the word El, which is short for Elohim, for God here which refers to God as the mighty one. It speaks of the the power of God. God has the power to preserve those who belong to him. And so David's expressing his desire for God to keep him safe. And this is something that God gives to all his children who trust in him, beloved, a, a sanctuary, as it were, where you can experience peace in the midst of peril. You can have an inner calm in the midst of any chaos in your life. I needed this this week. Like I said, this week was very chaotic for me. What a, what a wonderful psalm this is. You can even delight in the face of danger. You and I can delight in God in the midst of any hardship in life if we take refuge in him through prayer. And we can be completely satisfied him, in him no matter what our situation is in life. All right, moving on to verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I really just have to pause just about every time I read this because it's such a beautiful expression of praise. We have two different words that are used for the Lord here. Literally, it's, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. If you have an ESV translation like I do or an NASB, you'll notice that the first Lord is all caps. That's Yahweh in the Hebrew. And then the second Lord is a capital L and then small letters, O-R-D. That's translated Adonai. So in other words, I say to you, Yahweh, the the great I am, the the self-existent one, I say to you, you are my Adonai. You are my master. You are my my sovereign. Isn't that beautiful? He's expressing praise. He's, He's rejoicing in who God is. And because of who God is, he has this unshakable confidence that the Lord who's sovereign over his life is going to take care of him. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You know what, beloved? That's the very first thing that saving faith says. You are my Lord. Reminded of Romans 10.9. You guys know this verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
See, friends, the truth of the matter is, like David, we're all in danger. We're all in need of a place of refuge and protection because of our sin. And far more than any kind of temporal preservation, we need an eternal place of refuge. We need a a place of protection from the frightening wrath of God that's coming on this whole world because of sin. And, And the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus is the only refuge there is. Thank God he's provided a place of eternal refuge for us in his son. Amen? All right, now in the book of Numbers, we find that God actually ordained cities of refuge. These were were cities where a person who accidentally killed someone could flee for protection. The law demanded a life for a life. But but when it was accidental, God provided a safe haven. And those cities of safety, those were real cities, but they also pictured the ultimate place of refuge. They pictured the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the curse of God's wrath at the cross that we deserve for our sin. And to experience the eternal pleasure at God's right hand, you have to flee to Jesus Christ for refuge. You have to surrender your life to him by confessing your sin and saying to him, Lord, you are my Lord. And I trust in you alone and your finished work at the cross and not anything of myself to be saved from my sin. If you've done that, then and only then will you be safe on judgment day. I want to encourage anyone that's here this morning who hasn't run to Jesus to run to Jesus for refuge today. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how wicked of a lifestyle you've led up to this point, if you confess your sin and turn your life over to Jesus Christ, if you just say to him, you are my Lord, he promises to you to forgive you and to be your eternal refuge. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So run to Jesus now if you haven't, and take refuge in him. All right, now, the second part of verse 2 is really what the Reformed faith is all about. David says, I have no good apart from you. Essentially, the, the Reformed faith takes this one verse and seeks to work out its implications consistently in life. Anything good in me is not of me. Anything that's good in my life comes only from you, God. Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing good in and of yourself. Lord, anything I have, anything I do, I have no good apart from you. That's partially what David's saying here. This could actually be translated a couple of different ways. But when he says, I have no good apart from you, he's also saying, Lord, you're my greatest treasure. You're my supreme treasure. Treasure. Lord, there's no good for me that's any greater than you or apart from you. Anything good you've blessed me with, Lord, is good. Why? Because it just gives me more of you. God's his, his supreme treasure over everything else and in everything else. But we need to ask the question this morning, is that true of us? Is that true of you? Can you personally say, Lord Jesus, you're my greatest treasure over anything else and in anything else. Not just say that in word, but actually in your own personal experience. Is he greater than health? Is he greater than your bank account and what's in it? Is he greater than your favorite sports team? Is he greater than a relationship you might have? You guys can fill in the blank. You know, what those, th- you know those things in your own life that you're, temp- you're tempted to value above God. 
Can you say this morning that you're completely satisfied in God because he's your supreme treasure? I pray so. I pray so because there's nothing greater in this life to enjoy than him. All right, so we have the Lord's protection. David's completely satisfied in God because he's his safety, his sovereign, and his supreme treasure. Those are your three bullet points. Don't you hate it when the preacher gives you the bullet points afterwards? I'll I'll try not to do that again. All right, let me repeat that again. David delights in the Lord because he is his safety, his sovereign, and his supreme treasure. All right, next outline header, the Lord's provision. We have the Lord's protection and the Lord's provision. This this we find in verses 3 all the way through verse 8. David goes on here beginning in verse 3 to emphasize the Lord's supreme value by listing various examples of God's goodness that he's experienced in his own life. The first thing he mentions is God's people. That's bullet point number one, instead of me giving it to you afterwards. God's people is one of the things God provides for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice what he says. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See, David recognizes that there are others who want to live for the Lord. And in these others who want to live for the Lord, he's able to find delight. His, his joy in God is actually enhanced because he's delighted himself in the company of God's people. And isn't this so true? Isn't this so true? I love being with you guys. I just love it, especially Sunday mornings. Such a joy. And I'm able to actually enjoy God more watching all of you sing, God praise, sing God's praises. Hans, you actually mentioned that. You sit back and you listen. It's like you're enjoying God more listening to your brothers and sisters in Christ sing about him. My heart rejoices in your praising of the Lord and your worship in the Lord. I delight in your company as we seek to grow together in holiness and love and together find joy in God. So another question, do you enjoy God's people and actually being with God's people? Some people don't. They profess to be Christians and they come to church and they're out the door the minute the service is over. They don't want to be with God's people. They don't want to. Do you actually love being with God's people and serving them? I think you guys do. In fact, I know you do. Like I mentioned to you, this has been a challenging week. Jamie's been been gone for part of the week. I've been trying to put a sermon together. There's all kinds of things going on with our kids, um, with sports and different things that they need to be at and be involved with. And so it's been really challenging when we're trying to get her off to the airport. This is a story you'll have to talk to her about. Really unbelievable It was a complete nightmare trying to get her actually to Hawaii. So it's been an incredibly challenging week, and I've been tremendously blessed by so many of you during this week when I've been trying to focus my attention on this psalm so I could share with you what God has for your heart today. The Barnes, Frank Barnes, texted me right away, hey, can we help with kids? Can we come get the kids? We'll pick them up, we'll drop them off, we'll keep them as long as you need. The Bogles, same exact thing. You know, they took the boys, they took the kids. Um, the Collins are going to be taking the kids to help out. I'm getting all kinds of different texts, praying for you, bro, praying for the sermon, praying that God would use it to encourage his people. What a joy. What a joy you are to me. I enjoy God more because of you. That is, that is just so awesome. I love this. So all this to say, when God's at the center of our relationships, it really does impact how we're able to enjoy each other and especially enjoy God. 
All right, now verse 4. David emphasizes his radical preference for God by really putting it in the negative. He, he values God so greatly that he wouldn't dare run after other gods. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. That idea here is that they've forsaken the one true living God to go after idols. And David affirms that he's not going to participate in any of that. He's not going to participate in their pagan sacrifices. He's not even going to take the names of their gods, their idols, on his lips. John Calvin interprets the last phrase here to refer to the names of false gods or idols. In other words, things that will not truly satisfy a soul. David's saying, it's crazy. It's craziness. Why would I embrace something that would only lead to sorrow in the end? When, when I have a relationship with the all-satisfying God who's so good to me. No, no way. No way. I won't even take their names on my lips. And really, we have a warning here for us, beloved. That, that while the good, godless lifestyles of those who pursue sinful pleasures might be attractive, they might be enticing, in the end, all they do is just multiply sorrow. So don't pursue sin, pursue the Savior instead. And make him, Jesus, the sole object of your worship. Really got a, a two-fold application here. You can write this down if you want. The wise man will run to God and find satisfaction. will run from God and only find sorrow. Let me repeat that one more time. The wise man will run to God and find satisfaction. The unwise will run from God and find sorrow. All right, now, in these next few verses, we've got some beautiful metaphors that, that David uses to express more examples of God's goodness in his own life, more of the reasons why he's completely satisfied in God. And these are perhaps some of the most beautiful metaphors in all the Bible, and I, I wish we could really just park right here for the rest of the morning, but fortunately, time doesn't permit. The first metaphor we have is a portion. Notice David says, the Lord is my chosen portion. And what he's referring to is really God dividing up the land to the 12 tribes of Israel after they entered the promised land. They, they determined those, those portions of land by lot, if you remember, by casting lots, like, like rolling dice or, or drawing straws. That's, that's how the various land boundaries were determined for each tribe. Now, question, who controls that? Who controls the lot? Or for example, who controls the dice when they're rolled? I mean, is it, is it just the luck of the draw? Is that how it's supposed to work? Some tribes got better portions than others because they just had a lucky, lucky lot? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Proverbs 16.33 says, the, Lord, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the Lord actually determined the outcome of the portions, not luck. There's no such thing as luck. That's a word we really need to get out of our vocabulary. Luck, luck implies the Lord is not in control of everything. We have to weed that word out of our vocabulary. So, so point being, even though the land was divided up amongst the tribes by casting lots, the Lord determined... Or you could even say this, the Lord predetermined the outcome 
And which tribes got which portion of land? I'm going to come back to this in a little bit because it's very important. Anyway, if you remember, God didn't give an inheritance to, to one of those tribes. You guys remember which tribe that was? You can shout it out. The Levites, right? The Levites, the, the priests. And, and what did the Lord say to Aaron instead? You can actually find this in Numbers 18.20. God said this. You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. Listen to this. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. You don't need land, Aaron, or, or to farm the land for food. Because as you serve me in the role of priest for my people, I'm going to provide everything you need. I'm going to take care of your, your every need. So what's David getting at with this metaphor then? What's he, what's he saying? He's saying, Lord, you've determined, again, better yet, you've predetermined to give yourself to me. Wow. I mean, wow. The, the greatest act of your goodness in my life, God, is the giving of yourself to me. Lord, you're all I need. You're better than any piece of land that I could ever possess. doesn't matter if it's in Maui, where Jamie is, <laughs> with beachfront property. Lord, you're all I need. In essence, David's saying that the best gift given by God is, is not necessarily salvation from sin, it's not necessarily regeneration or justification. Best gifts, not sanctification, not even glorification. The best gift God gives is actually the gift of himself. See, all these other things are amazing, yes, and we praise God for them, but the greatest blessing God bestows on those who belong to him is actually himself. Again, I want to quote my favorite theologian, John Calvin. He has some commentary on this. He says, None are taught aright in true godliness, but those who reckon God alone sufficient for their happiness. He goes on to say, For he who has God as his portion is destitute of nothing, which is requisite to constitute. Lord, all I need is you to be happy. Lord, you're all I need. Lord, enjoying you is my happiness. All right, now David also says the Lord is his cup. He says, my chosen portion and my cup. What is this picture? Well, you guys know the 23rd Psalm. David wrote that as well, where he says, my cup runneth over. My cup overflows, in other words. And the overflowing cup there, and really here as well, pictures the Lord as given the very best he has to his children. David's saying, nothing nourishes and sustains me. Nothing satisfies the way you do, Lord. Lord, you're like fresh, cool water in in the hottest desert that never, ever runs out. In you, Lord, I never thirst. I have everything I need in you, God, because you're my overflowing cup. And so your second bullet point in your notes, under the Lord's provision, is himself. In his goodness, God has given David and us each other to enjoy, and then best of all, he's given us himself. He is our portion, and he is our overflowing cup. And then we come back to this idea of a lot that's there at the end of verse 5. You hold my lot. In other words, when those, those dice are rolled, or when those, those straws are drawn, whatever happens in my life 
is the result of your sovereign reign over it. You hold my lot. In other words, you reign over my life, Lord, and I'm so thankful that you do. And then verse 6 really builds on this idea when David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What does it mean for God to have sovereign reign over David's life? What does that mean? It means that the lines, you could say, or the boundaries of his life, think of the, the plot plan for all those pieces of land that were divided up for the, the tribes of Israel. God determined those, those lot lines, Right? The, the boundaries of David's life, his property lines, his personal property lines for his life, so to speak, have been determined by God. You know what this is, beloved? This is the doctrine of predestination. That's what it is. David, David takes full pleasure in God as his greatest treasure because God is the great predestinator of his life. He's, he's the one who foreordained a perfect plan for David's life. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said on this. He said, David believed in an overruling destiny which fixed the bounds of his abode and his possessions. He did more. He was satisfied with all the appointment of the predestinating God. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Lord, I'm completely content with everything you've appointed for my life. Content. So your next bullet point then is God's predestination. And you can put a slash and actually write providence. And I'm going to briefly explain what each of these mean if you're not sure. This is going to be very brief. Predestination is the, the biblical doctrine that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Let me say that again. Predestination is the biblical doctrine that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Everything that happens, happens because God preplanned it. You're here this morning because God predestined that you would be here this morning worshiping him. He preplanned it. And I know what some of you might be thinking at this point. What about evil and sin? And that's where this gets a little tricky because this is a very deep theological concept. This is... This is where we find some of the mystery of this psalm, the, the miktam. But in a nutshell, predestination means which includes even evil and sin, listen to this, in such a way that he's not responsible for evil and sin. Try to figure that one out. And let me know if you do. Uh, the Westminster Confession actually has a really great definition of predestination that you can actually look up on your own, or we can talk a little bit more after. Better yet, you can sign up for the, one of these upcoming core seminars. There's a little plug that we got in. We're going to be covering this doctrine in the second series on systematic theology, which Eric's actually asked me to, to teach, and I'm really looking forward to all these classes because I know, without a shadow of a doubt, they're going to be very helpful for us all. They're going to help us to know our God much, much better. All right, so I probably opened up a can of worms for some of you. But this really is what predestination is. It's, it's overarching. It encompasses every single event in universal history. But it's also personal. 
It's personal as well. And, and it's what David's referring to here in the personal sense as it pertains to his very own life. All right, providence or God's providence. That has a, a dual meaning. But we're going to just focus on the, the meaning, the context that's here in the, the psalm. Providence is God working out in time everything that he's pre-planned in the past. Let me say that again. Providence is working out in time everything that he pre-planned to happen in the past. For example, God predetermined back in eternity which tribes would get which property in the promised land. And then in his providence, he brought that about in time through the casting of the lots. Think of it this way. Again, there's no such thing as luck. There's only providence. That's the word we need to replace luck with. We need to replace the word luck with providence because there is absolutely nothing that happens by chance. God sovereignly reigns over everything. And that's why David is rejoicing here. That's what he's rejoicing in, the fact that God has a perfect plan already set and in motion for his own life. He's meditating. He's thinking as he's writing this. He's looking back over at his life and all the experiences, the good, the bad, I'll say the ugly for you Clint Eastwood fans. He's looking back at the good and the bad, even the ugly, without excusing his own sin or the sin of anyone else. And he's saying, I see a plan and a purpose. And it's far too complicated for me to have ever conceived something like this on my own. How do you work a Saul? How do you work a Uriah and an Absalom? How do you work all those experiences together for good in my life? Beloved, only God can do something like that. It's almost as if he's quoting Romans 8.28 here, which hasn't even been inspired by the Holy Spirit yet. We know this, this verse, and we know that God causes all things. God causes all things, and ESB has it best. I'm an ESB fan. Um, Rochelle Bogle is a huge NESB fan, so you can razz her a little bit about that, but her translation has this more accurate. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his, what? Purpose, right? Do you believe this, church? Do you Can you look back over your own life and everything that's happened and say with David, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places? Lord, Lord, your plan for me is good because it's for my ultimate good. And you even use the bad to accomplish good in my own life. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've had some incredibly hard things that you've had to go through in your own life. Maybe you've had someone deeply, I mean deeply hurt you or, or wound you emotionally, maybe even physically. Perhaps a, an abusive parent or an abusive spouse. There, there are all kinds of wicked and evil acts in this fallen and sinful world. Rape, molestation, physical abuse, abandonment. And I could go on and on and on. Listen, if any, any of these kinds of things are part of your past, I sympathize with you. And I'm sorry, I'm deeply sorry that those things have happened to you. Perhaps they're... There are many scars. You look back and you see scars. That's all you can see over your life. And so now you find it difficult to trust anyone. You find it hard to open up to people. Well, I want to encourage you. 
that's you. If you really want to move forward, having been wounded so deeply, if you really want to move forward and be truly healed, if you want to experience in your life the fullness of joy and true happiness in life and the ever so sweet satisfaction that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, then like David, you need to say to the Lord this morning without excusing anyone of their sin, you need to say to the Lord, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Lord, I, you know I've been wounded. My heart's been broken, God. But the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Lord, I believe. Lord, I trust that somehow, some way, you've caused all these things to work together for my good because you're good. And Lord, you're my inheritance and you're beautiful. That's, that's what David is rejoicing in here. The, the doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty over his own life. You guys know this. People either love this doctrine or they hate it. There's really no in-between with this doctrine. And if you don't believe it, and I praise God that you are, and I praise God for you, and I'm thankful for you, Listen, if you don't believe this doctrine, then you don't truly have a God-centered view of life. See, a truly God-centered view of life sees God as the great predestinator. And like David, people that believe it love to talk about it. Like, why are people always talking about predestination? I mean, there's some serious arguments that happen over predestination. Relationships end because of the doctrine of predestination. People, people that believe it love to talk about it. They love to praise God for it because it really does something in your heart. It does something to you. It's like a, an anchor for your soul. So David's been reflecting on how God, how satisfied he is in God by, by mentioning several of God's wonderful provisions, his people, the greatest provision of all, himself, predestination, providence, God's perfect plan for his life. And then next we see is his word. That's the next bullet point. I really need to, to pick up the pace here a little so we can get through the rest of this psalm. Notice verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. See, David, especially as a king, needed counsel that he could trust and he could follow. And he allowed the Lord to lead him and instruct him with his word. Now, of course, he didn't have all the inspired scriptures like we do, but he did have the books of the law. He, he had Joshua, and in God's word, he was able to see God's revelation of himself and the all-satisfying beauty of God. And David was taught by the Lord through his word and received counsel for his life. And he listened to that direction. He listened to that counsel and followed the Lord with all of his heart. So he's, he's praising God here in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me his counsel. And, and as I pour his word into my heart and meditate on it and let it marinate there, it even instructs me at night, night after night after night. That's actually in the plural. And this is yet another reason for David to enjoy God and be completely satisfied in him. And it is absolutely true for us too. All right. Then having reviewed these, these wonderful blessings, having meditated on them, he 
actually reaffirms the commitment to God that he began with and upon which his happiness rests. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Isn't that a beautiful thought? It's beautiful. David's made a decision to always put the Lord in front of his eyes. And because he's made God first in his life, what's the result? He will not be shaken. He will not be moved. I have to quote John Calvin again. He, he explains this so well. He says, the meaning here is that David kept his mind so intently fixed upon the providence of God as to be fully persuaded that whenever any difficulty or distress should befall him, God would always be at hand to assist him. Calvin concludes, David then reckons himself secure against all dangers and promises himself certain safety because with the eyes of faith, he beholds God as present with him. You guys see what's happening here? You see what's happened? David's actually moved from asking God to preserve him in verse 1 to actually affirming here now in verse 8 that God will do just that. He's gone from asking to affirming. How did he get there? Well, he got there by rejoicing in who God is. That's how he got there, by delighting in God and enjoying him. For seven verses, he's been exulting in God and the the character of God and the reasons why he's absolutely satisfied in God. In, In the midst of the dangers of his life, his heart is not in chaos. Rather, it's completely content and absolutely 100% confident in God. How? Because his eyes are fixed on God. His eyes aren't fixed on his circumstances. His eyes are fixed on God and his amazing goodness and grace in his own life. Lord, you're my sovereign. Lord, you're my sustenance. Lord, you're my inheritance and my counselor. Lord, no matter what dangers I have to face, no matter what hardships, no matter what trials you have planned for my life to mold my character, to to make me more like you, Lord, I have you always before me, and because you're at my right hand, because ultimately you will never leave me nor forsake me, I will not be shaken. I mean, amazing, right? Doesn't that inspire you and encourage you in your own Christian life? It should. Look at verse 9. Therefore, David says, because of everything I've said about the blessings of God, this is verse 9, and the goodness of God and his provisions for me, his people, his person, his plan for my life, his counsel. Therefore, David says, my heart is glad. It's glad. Not only that, my whole being rejoices. Again, this is just another way of saying I'm completely and totally satisfied in God. My, My heart is glad. And joy permeates throughout my entire being. Awesome. All right, now it's hard to believe, but as good as all this is, it just keeps getting better. Keeps getting better. We have the Lord's protection, the Lord's provisions, and finally I want you to note the Lord's promises. The Lord's promises. The promises begin in the second half of verse 9 and then wrap up the psalm. And I'll just give them to you now so you can write them down. The promises are two, eternal security and eternal satisfaction. God's promises are eternal security and eternal satisfaction. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, David says. 
and my flesh also dwells secure. He says he's secure. He's secure in the Lord. How? How so? That, that word for secure can also mean com- uh, confident. He's confident that the Lord will give him the protection he's asked for back in verse 1. But, but from what? From what? Notice verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. See, of course David knows he's going to die eventually. It's not that he doubt, he, he uh, believed he wasn't. So what he's, what he's saying here, what, what God's promise is, is that not even death can terminate this ever-satisfying relationship that he has with the Lord. David's confident. He's, he's secure in the fact that all God has been for him in his life, his refuge, his sovereign, his counselor, all these, these wonderful things, God is going to be that for him forever. Death is not going to put an end to his relationship with God. Death, death will not cancel out his ability to be completely satisfied in God. And then, this is a whole nother probably sermon series, but... Uh, this verse also refers to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's an incredible verse. Incredible. Both, both Peter and Paul actually apply this verse to Christ in the book of Acts. So, so the Spirit of God somehow, some way, as, as David was writing this, moved him to consider God's plan and purpose for his great son, the, the Lord's anointed from Psalm 2, It's as if David, by the Holy Spirit, looks down the corridors of history and sees the Lord Jesus when he wrote this psalm. That that though Christ would die upon a cross and then be buried in a tomb, his soul would not be abandoned to the grave and his body would not see corruption. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ would rise again on the third day. Death gave, gave Jesus its best shot. Death gave Jesus everything it had. But death came up miserably short. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, because Christ would be raised from the grave, David would be too. I mean, think about this for a minute. I mean, just, just think practically with me for a minute. Why would, why would God go through all the trouble to redeem David and to redeem you and me and then to guide us through life and protect us in life and provide all these things for us in life all along the way only to let it end up in a grave. That makes no sense at all, does it? That makes absolutely no sense at all. No, beloved, should the Lord tarry and you and I die before he comes again and he will come again He will raise us all from the grave. He'll raise us from corruption to incorruption. And he's going to fit us with glorified bodies. And you and I are going to be able to enjoy his presence for all eternity. Unbelievable. But it's true. Listen, that's a promise from God. That's a promise from God. It's backed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so David's eternally secure. And and we can be eternally secure. We are eternally secure thanks to our resurrected Savior. What a a wonderful Savior he is. Amen? 
All right, well, finally, God promises David and us through this psalm eternal satisfaction, where the joy of the Lord will be forever experienced to the fullest. And I, I just love how this psalm concludes. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. You, you should really highlight this verse, underscore it, memorize it, write it upon your heart. Verse 11, look at this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is, this is David's confident expectation that his sweet and satisfying relationship with the Lord, with God himself, would without a shadow of a doubt overcome the grave. That, that his joy and pleasureship, pleasure and fellowship with God would extend beyond this life. At some point in time in this life, he would die. He knew that. He knew he was going to die. But yet he knew God's covenant promises to his people would not end there. And so David not only trusts God for deliverance from death, but also in the way of everlasting, to everlasting life, that he would have eternal life, where he would forever be in the presence of the Lord, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And it's a joy that the Bible says is unspeakable and full of glory. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? I can't wait. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I mean, it's hard to imagine what this is going to be like. Spurgeon's got, got a beautiful thought on this. He says, listen to this. Oh, this is, this is gold. The glorified soul will be forever bathing in the rivers of pleasure. The glorified soul will be forever bathing in the rivers of pleasure. What a, what a beautiful picture that is. It's like our, our whole atmosphere is going to be filled with joy. It's like we'll be breathing in and exhaling joy, the joy of the Lord. We'll be soaking bathing, basking in the joy of the Lord. And isn't that something we long to hear? Isn't that something we long to hear? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. So I want to encourage you this morning, beloved, if you've taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, then all these wonderful truths apply to you. You can, you can have the fullness of joy in this life and the next. David delights in God. He's completely satisfied in him because he knows God as his protector, his provider, and the great promise keeper. And God's message to us this morning through David is is simply this, true joy, true satisfaction, the fullness of joy is found only in knowing God. I want you to hear the words of our Lord Jesus from John 17.3 as we conclude. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Beloved, know Christ, and you cannot help but to enjoy him forever. Amen? Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Oh, our Father, we thank you for this precious psalm. Thank you that you've given those of us who've taken refuge in your Son, the glorious gift of yourself. Lord, there's nothing better in life and all of eternity than enjoying you. Thank you for being our protector, Lord, and our provider. Thank you that all your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, our Lord, to your glory. 
Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to encourage any believer here who may not be presently experiencing your joy. Lord, I ask that you would restore to them the joy of their salvation. Might we all truly glorify you by enjoying you forever. And Lord, we definitely want to pray for any here this morning who've never taken refuge in Christ. Pray that your spirit would move upon their hearts and draw them to your son. And that you would grant them a new heart that lives for your son and not for sin. Because as you've you've taught us this morning, Lord, the pursuit of sin will only lead to sorrow. So we plead with you to save today any here who've never come to Christ for his name's sake. Amen.